Hello, Great Minds. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. This episode of DGMH is brought to you by Podcorn, the easy, stress-free way to start monetizing your podcast. Anyone who has started a podcast from scratch dreams of rapid growth and generating some income, but making those dreams into realities can be challenging. But not with Podcorn. Personally, I had no idea who to reach out to, who would be interested in sponsoring my show, or where to even begin. Podcorn changed all of that. Podcorn is a place where podcasters can connect with great, relevant podcast sponsorship opportunities, and you get to work directly with every sponsor. Podcasters, big and small, can browse and choose opportunities right from the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly in a way that is easy for everyone. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you every step of the way. Podcorn gives podcasters creative freedom and full control of how and when we monetize. Just click on the link in my show notes to sign up with Podcorn and start making the most of your podcasting journey. So let's raise a glass to Podcorn. Cheers! So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, but most people just know me as Zach DeBacco. And as always, I'm joined by Dr. Sherry Valensic for this round of A Twist of Psych. Hello, Zach. How are you? Hi, Sherry. I'm sorry, I was taking a drink because I said Dr. Sherry Valencic and I had to. But as we get ready to dive into the mind of Isabella of Castile, I have to welcome you back to the show. So, Sherry, how are you doing tonight? Well, as we were talking about, uh, and anybody who's involved in the field of education knows how important spring break is at this time of year, and I am needing it big time, big time this year. So I would say that I'm a mix of weariness and uh, great anticipation. This year, everybody's got to take what they can get, so... Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Anything to travel. Um, long day at work. I know we don't want to talk about it, but <laughs> that's why we're drinking. I know. I know. All right. So uh, before we talk psych then, since you brought it up, let's talk twist. What are you drinking tonight? So uh, I'm giving a little bit of nod to the whole Catholic theme of the Isabella thing. And uh, being somebody who was raised Roman Catholic, I kind of decided to do a water and wine type theme. I've actually had a dear friend of mine who I grew up with on my island in Northern Ohio who met me out of blue last uh, last Saturday or last Sunday. She was coming through Venice and so I met her and she happened to bring me a bottle of my favorite screw top wine from Northern Ohio, a Monami Waitakaba. And true Northern Ohio fashion, I'm drinking it in a glass with ice cubes. So uh, that is my best so that's my nod to uh, the, the Catholicness of you're, the episode. You're turning water into wine in a way, yes. or at least making it look like that. That's fantastic. I, I had a little bit of ice in my wine the other day. I had this fruity red wine that's like almost like a Lambrusco, and I put a few ice cubes in it to chill it down a little more. And it's very good, very good. Well, so actually, I actually prefer it that way, but I'm no wine connoisseur. And as I tell everybody, my favorite wine is a bottle of $7.99 screw top wine that you can buy in drugstores in Ohio. So I love it. I don't think that, you know, wine snobbery is a dangerous thing because I think that wine comes down to your taste. And if you like ice cubes in your wine, you do it. My family is in the ha has always been in the habit of chilling some red wines that is like a big no-no for many people. And honestly, certain brands of Merlot and Cabernet are a little better cold. I, I, I don't know. But I too was going to drink wine tonight, uh, but I'm not. I'm drinking another Corona Premier because, well, you know, I, I, I drank all the wine last night. Uh, so <laughs> 
<laughs> I was actually going to enjoy a refreshing, re refreshing, a refreshing glass of Vina Verge. But like I said, over the past two nights, I, I busted into it. And to bring up snobbery, Vina Verge is always a twist top and it's always cheap. And the cheapest one I've ever had was the one I just had the other night. And it was from Trader Joe's and it was called Espirial or something like that. $4.49 a bottle. And it was a big bottle and you know, like a jug, but it was like a tall bottle. And it was very good. Every bit as good as the like $13.99 bottle I buy. So gotta love me in a cheap drunk. There, there's I, something very, very authentic about that. Oh my God, too. And I had like, uh, it was so going down so smooth last night that I just kept drinking it. <laughs> well, and I, have to say, I have to say that I was I was wrestling with what my beverage was going to be. And I, I went to go reach for a nice cold Guinness because St. Patrick's Day is coming up. And you know, there's an Irish Catholic thing going on there. Um, I traveled to Ireland two years ago with a great group, you know, mourning that European experience. But uh, also the whole Catholic theme uh, got to me. So. Well, and you know, if you're really looking for a loose connection to Ireland, Isabella and Ferdinand's daughter, Catherine of Aragon, was married to Henry VIII of England, who was one of the early people to conquer uh, swaths of Ireland in his, his reign. So that's and, and so Any reason to drink a Guinness? Nothing quite like, you know, the ultimate experience of having it in a pub in, in Dublin. Well, and they, they use, they have a water reserve mm -hmm. that is only for the Guinness that is brewed in Ireland. And it tastes completely different. And anybody who travels there, even for people who don't like dark brews or don't make Guinness. There is something about it. Uh, yep. I, I, I tell everybody, I, when I was in Ireland, I took pictures of every single Guinness that I drank as if they were my biological children. And I have them all on my phone. It's my happy memories. It. I love it. I, I remember, I mean, I do that. I, I, I drink a lot on my travels. It's not surprising. But when we were last in Rome, we walked, we had one day in Rome. So my sister, my wife, and I did 14 miles of walking. And by the time we got to the area of Rome past the Vatican called Cavour, I was so tired and my knees hurt so bad. I'm in my late 20s at this point, maybe. You know, it's not like they should be hurting. But 14 miles of walking in cobblestone roads was enough to make me want to just die. And it was like 100 degrees that day. And I sat down and I, you know, they had these bottles of beer that they typically serve in a glass. And it's the big the big Peroni bottles. So in, in Rome, they have like these giant ones. And I said, I want that. He's like, the whole bottle? I was like, yes. Would you like a glass? That, I guess, that seems more socially acceptable. And then we walked another mile to the restaurant where we were meeting all the other tour people. And oh my God, I sat down. Brielle and I killed a bottle of Lambrusco. It was perfect. So, uh, here, here's to one day being able to travel again. And, and drink, yes. 14 yes. miles on cobblestone. I think Rome might be one of my first places back to. It's just so, so special to me. I mean, my favorite beer is there. Uh, Trey Fontane. But I don't know. So we should probably talk history before I start losing listeners. But uh, you know what? Nostalgia kicks in. Now let's get to the psych then. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the mind behind Isabella of Castile. But first, it's some history for you. A reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Okay. Well, before we get to Sherry's amazing insights, which are always fun to hear, one thing that stood out to me about Isabella and really her husband was the relationship she had with Ferdinand of Aragon. Uh, things that I've read sometimes almost seem novel, the fact that they worked together so well as a team. And since we are recording this episode on March 10th, 
Ferdinand's birthday, I figured we might showcase the relationship for a quick second. So I was wondering, Sherry, and if it ties to your thoughts in any, in any way, just we'll just continue on, but did you have any insights to share with us on the psychology principles related to marriage or maybe how we choose a partner? So I actually have some questions because whenever I think of Isabella, I, I have a very rudimentary understanding about her history and her involvement politically. But I always think of Isabella and money because she funded Columbus's journey to the Western part of the world. But did she and Ferdinand have like a, a loving relationship or was it a relationship of convenience? Because it I didn't So I guess... So the reason I didn't go into it too much in the podcast is because I didn't, I, it, I'm always weary to end up accidentally taking away from the woman I'm covering just because in history we look at them as a married person. So that's why I strayed away from it. But it depends on what you read. You can read just as many sources that sit here and say that they truly loved each other, maybe in uh, a romantic sense at first, maybe always in the sense of a strong partner. I know that Ferdinand, I have read, was asked not to remarry and then totally went and remarried a French girl to cement a French alliance. But he was very pragmatic. So, you know, he was looking at that as I can secure peace with the North if I remarry. And he probably just wanted to remarry. He also was known for having a few mistresses on the side especially in his younger days. They were fairly young when they, they married. So I don't want to say that it wasn't a marriage of love. I just think that what love meant then was very different than what we take it as today. So I think that they made for a decent partnership, always willing to compromise, work together. And I think he listened to her. But I don't know if that was because of love or because she had the more wealthy, more powerful state. Uh, so. Well, and so, and that was my thought about Isabella when I was listening to the podcast and doing some research about her, is to me, Isabella for her time, um, knew a lot about economics. And so there is actually a very interesting theory of attraction that's out there that's called the exchange theory, uh, which is where people who get together in some kind of partnership, whether it's a romantic liaison or otherwise, understand that each partner has a benefit for each other. And, um, you know, when you, re when you think that the benefits of a partnership are going to bring you rewards, you are willing to stay in that relationship. Uh, when it no longer brings you some kind of reward, then you think about getting out of it. And so I just wonder for Isabella if their marriage, their partnership, whatever you want to call it, is kind of based on that idea that she had a plan in mind for her governance of Spain. And, you know, back in that day, it involved, you know, having a, a prominent marriage. And I just wonder if they had more of an alliance that might be explained by this idea of exchange, that they both provided benefits for each other, that created opportunities for them and their country and their esteem and their fame or whatever else you want to say. I mean, um, yeah. But that, that's what I kind of think about. And I mean, Isabella certainly had to combat, you know, I kind of see her as a, a woman who never expected power, but then once it was there, she wasn't going to relinquish it for the sake of Castile. And talk about love. I think she loved Castile and wanted it to be truly successful. And I think she saw Aragon, at least when they married, as one, a way for her to affirm that no one would tell her who she would marry, which was very cool yeah, because her brother was trying to. And then when her brother, you know, died, she had she had Ferdinand's army from Aragon to fight alongside her army in Castile against her outside enemies. Um, so, you know, there was a benefit to their marriage, certainly on both parts. I mean, Ferdinand had a stronger maybe maritime tradition in Aragon. But in reality, when Ferdinand and Isabella married, you know, that, that's, a, that's a chaotic wave of different stories that 
you know, really just culminated in the two being monarchs of their respective states and ruling jointly. So that's, that's interesting. You think of this exchange theory. So, you know, Dr. Phil is never a great example to bring up. and He certainly gets a lot of criticism in the field of psychology. But if you watch Dr. Phil's shows, and, you know, he kind of alludes to this, that when we look at especially dysfunctional relationships, and I'm not saying that Ferdinand and Isabella were, but that each partner gets something from the other partner. And that often is a way to very simply explain why people stay in dysfunctional relationships. Somehow they are each benefiting from that and the risk of not being together would be more than the benefits. And so I just wonder if, you know, Isabella being as astute as she was and Ferdinand just realized that their partnership with each other was going to benefit each in lots of different ways. And so that was a reason for them to form their partnership romance, alliance, marriage, whatever you want to call it. Now, is this, you said something about economic psychology, or is this tied, this exchange theory tied to, that was what it was called, right? Exchange theory? Uh, exchange theory or social exchange theory. Is it tied to some particular psychologist? Well, it's exactly a sociology theory. George Homans is the gentleman who originally proposed it. But, you know, if you think about that idea of um, competition, um, you know, competition with businesses, there are benefits for businesses to form alliances with each other or to, you know, have some aspect of consumerism that is out there that benefits them and benefits the consumer. And so it's, you know, it's just based on that generic idea of exchange. But a lot of these things are related to economic psychology. You know, we can go to something as simple as opportunity costs. But when you decide to marry somebody, um, there is an alternative that you could have done. But the benefits of marriage um, will likely, at least temporarily or in somebody's mind, uh, would have a greater benefit to them. So I think it, it ties in. And again, my, my very rudimentary idea of Isabella and what she did for her country always just goes back to, you know, the woman was rich, the woman knew how to spend her money, she did have her great love for her country, and so she was always looking for it to benefit her country, and she was the figurehead of that country, so it benefited her. And what you said about this benefit, I think that's even more so, that, or I'm sorry, that opportunity cost, it's even more true for like an early modern monarch, because they're making literally a choice between marriage, proposed marriage alliances. And going one way or the other can have severe benefits, but also severe ramifications. Making a bad alliance could weaken your state as a whole. So Ferdinand and Isabella's marriage, they, they did see that mutual gain. And I really like well, looking at it. So, I mean, it's always opportunity cost is about, you know, the loss of potential gain. So when you are making a decision, you are making a choice, you know, each option for a decision can have a potential benefit for you. But which one is going to either give you the greatest benefit or make you lose the least? And so, you know, I, I just think that's something interesting to think about with their relationship, because at least I have not read, nor did I get the sense that there was this, you know, this, this great sense of affection or love between them that, especially for Isabella, it was about Spain. And, and that was, um, you know, her, her great love was her area of Spain and her people, not necessarily Ferdinand. So I guess we will save the psychology of love for another couple, uh, whoever that may be. So. Well, we've given lots of other examples before. I mean, oh, I think absolutely. that there have been very poignant examples where love that has been lost, you know, dreadfully affected people for the rest of their lives. Stalin, Jefferson. Oh, absolutely. Um, who else? There was somebody else. Oh, Hamilton. Hamilton. We talked about him. Yeah, we haven't examined love quite a bit on, on the show. It certainly plays a factor. I mean, it's obvious it plays a factor in all of our lives. But well, that's awesome. And thanks for answering that question for me. So uh, 
now that we've dived into the, the marriage side of it, what psychological curiosities did you want to bring to the conversation tonight? <laughs> or what came to mind after you listened to Isabella's story told by me? Us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and a lot of my knowledge of history is because of Mr. DGMH's there is a There is an exchange, uh, a beneficial mutual exchange of knowledge between the two of us on this show. I yeah, learned that just sure. now. I think I'm, I'm on the higher end. I think I benefit more than you God, do. God, no. I, oh, my God. I know nothing about psychology. And now when my students ask shit about it, I'm like, actually, this is how that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know what I, I think it's is you know when I when I look at the people that you choose for this podcast, my history learning over the course of you know starting in high school through really bachelor's degree really had nothing to do with any of these people, and I'm embarrassed to say that I have only a very basic understanding of Isabella. I didn't know anything about Catherine the Great. I didn't know anything about Louis the Fourteenth, and I don't know whether that was just my 1980s and 90s high school and collegiate experience, or whether that is more reflective of most people. And so I think it. I think it's always important to model being a lifelong learner. I think that's what people are attracted to podcasts in general yeah. for, um, because there's always that element of learning. But I, I mean, I've been fascinated by all this. Oh, yeah, and so yeah. that kind of brings me to the next point. You know, my, my knowledge of the Spanish Inquisition comes from Mel Brooks movies, um, which I think a lot of people would legally admit to. But, you know, I... I was really edified by just uh, the constant information about Isabella being so devoted to her church, to uh, Castile. And so, you know, when I look at the type of things that Isabella did, ethical, non-ethical, legal, illegal, I tend to think that okay. her talent was getting people to also subscribe to her goals, to make her region of Spain as great as it could possibly be, um, even though there were some some dastardly methods. That, so I wanted to talk about the idea of superordinate goals, and I wanted to give you some more information about what she did to benefit her region of Spain. And was she somebody who really got her people to support her in her endeavors? Are you asking me? Yes, I'm asking. I mean, well, it's certainly not hard to get priests to support you in promoting the Roman Catholic Church, but there is something to say that she was able to reinforce if not by an institution built on fear, a certain support from her Catholic population. I, I kind of, I, the way I put it in my podcast, I think was some, something along the lines of she had the support of the subjects she wanted. And I'm not saying that makes her good. You know, all this talk about op opportunity cost ties to the Inquisition as well, because she did, and it was a delicate balance, build a strong state, but at a terrible cost. So, I mean, I guess she did have the support of, the majority of her population in that and was was her ultimate goal to make spain as catholic as possible so in my years studying isabella and it's funny what you said earlier because like isabella of castile maybe i wrote a paper on cortez month once catherine the great i never came across but I, you know the skills to do the historical research is something i have i mean i studied mistresses coffee houses and portugal in in grad school you know that's those were my focus points just to play around with and you know i, I just always liked european monarchs and the age of absolutism and kingship that was certainly a, a a point of mine that i really liked and now i've kind of forgot your question uh the question was you know was was her goal 
ultimately to make Spain as Catholic as possible. So I have been teaching Isabella for six years now, or five years now, and in, in all honesty, I truly believe that her goal was to unify Spain, and that she saw religion, although being pious and devout, good, I got it right this time, devout, okay, she was a true believer. I, I don't think she was so naive. I believe she saw religion as a tool to unify a very divided state politically and religiously and socially. Did her citizenry also want to be more united? Or was there a big part of her citizenry that... Well, she's what is her citizenry? You know, in Castile, maybe, yes, they had been divided by civil war, succession crises, etc. But she's unifying Spain, which is Castile, Aragon, and a Muslim kingdom of Granada. So I, I don't know that they, they necessarily... I think that her Catholic population certainly was very much behind unifying this in a purely Roman Catholic sense. Absolutely. So would you consider her greatest ally the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely. Absolutely. The men that she put in power, and I use that word, Torquemada, Talavera, Cisneros, even her old friend and ally, Pope Rodrigo Borgia Alexander VI, you know, she supported their power, she backed their power, and they in turn backed her. So yes, her greatest ally most certainly, I think, was the Roman Catholic Church. And so, you know, the, the other slight concept that I was thinking of, I don't, I don't think exact fit for Isabella's situation, uh, but there is a social psychology concept that is called a superordinate goal. A superordinate goal is a broad, overarching project, endeavor, goal that at least two social groups have. And the theory is that uh, both of the groups have to work together in order to successfully achieve that goal. Um, it's related mostly to conflict theory. It has been found to be a research-based way to get groups that are in conflict with each other to resolve their conflict. It's not enough just to sit down groups and have them talk it out, but this idea of having some kind of overarching goal that both groups have to work on together has been found to reduce conflict. So, um, you know, I was thinking about Isabella's alliance with the Catholic Church, and if the goal was to make Spain as Catholic as possible, regardless of what the reason for that was, then I think it sort of fits that idea of a subordinate goal that they worked together and did Isabella have I mean were they compadres um did they did they have conflict with each other or were they both unified in that goal so I think other? Isabella had conflict with herself I think that Isabella is actually the source of conflict here whenever it came to we should how should we treat the Muslims or the converted Muslims or the Jews or the converted Jews both those conversos um conversos mudiharis and conversos judiharis and um later with the Native American tribes uh, of the Caribbean. Isabella always advocated for a better treatment, but heresy was still something that she conflicted with, and it took the Roman Catholic Church and the high figures convincing her in a way that the that heresies existed and must be rooted out, and then the two banded together in this common goal of rooting out heresy. The irony of which is witchcraft never really was a big deal with the Inquisition. I've always loved that fun fact, is that the Inquisition didn't really pay much attention to witches. Um, so yeah, I, I do think, I actually, the more you described it to me, think it fits very well. Um, uh, and the interesting thing, I was doing actually a little bit of research on witchcraft, and um, during that era, it seemed that the suspect of witches seemed to be 
more in Central and Eastern Europe. There were a lot of witches in Germany um, that were tortured or put to death during that era than were ever brought in the more Western European areas. Oh yeah, save England. And we can thank James for that. It seemed to travel with a monarch who believed it. And, and like I said, I mean, I think that the Inquisition had basically stamped out any idea of possible witchcraft in Spain, the Spanish Inquisition, I should say. But yeah, Germany, what a hotbed for crazy ass witch shit i mean like from the 1500s through the 1600s um the image i show for day one when i teach the 30 years war is about 20 witches hanging from a tree uh that, that was so dominant a force in the 30 years war uh which is obviously uh, you know 150 years after isabella's death but yeah which is crazy so that was called social the superordinate goal. Uh, it's a, it's, it's actually, the idea is based on social psych research that kind of started in the mid-1930s, but uh, was based on a very famous social psych experiment uh, that was done by a Turkish-American researcher named Muzaffar Sheriff. And what he actually did was he created a summer camp experience for a group of boys um, out in Oklahoma. Um, and put them into two groups and wanted to see what happened during their group formation and how each individual boy would contribute to that and if the conflict arose, how they would resolve it. Um, so the idea actually comes from um, a piece of adolescent uh, summer camp research. But um, I think especially if you look at um, worldwide more modern day worldwide conflict and you think about all the times that world leaders have sat down and tried to talk out their differences um, a lot of that is for show and it's really never um, seen practically um, but you know I always love to use you know Ronald Reagan was somebody I admired greatly and you know when you think about that idea of tearing down Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War uh, it took him and uh, Gorbachev um, to have that similar goal together um, and, then, and then something was accomplished and yes. it was two okay. of them and you had two conflicting groups um ussr us and then um that goal was accomplished and i know people will argue whether or not it really was but i think that's a more modern day example of it but, you know even when oh, you look at uh, families that are, are feuding with each other and then all of a sudden a beloved family member um, has an accident or stricken with disease and then everybody rallies around that family member, friction gets reduced. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting concept that I think we can bring down um, to a personal level. But, you know, when I was trying to think of, of Isabella and what's, you know, I think that is just a basic historic understanding of her and then thinking about this relationship she had with the Catholic Church, that was just a concept that came to my mind. Well, that's fascinating. I haven't figured out exactly how to say it once today. Uh, I think on the way out of school today, I said, so we're talking about super cobble. Well, super, think about ordinary. Instead of yeah. ordinary, it's ordinate, super ordinate. Super ordinate theory. Ordinate, A-P-E at the end. Just not going to happen. I'm going to have to look it up and type it on the Facebook page. <laughs> super ordinate Super ordinate goal. I love it. Is there any other uh, piece that you wanted to, to chime in on or? Uh, no, I'm waiting for you to uh, attack me with something that you wanted to talk about with gynophobia. Yes. Uh, I need some context that goes along with that. All right. Let me do the little spiel here. So 
Uh, now that we've heard Sherry's thoughts on Isabella, which were certainly fascinating, and I, I never would have thought this would have taken an economic approach, and as much as I want to ask about the psychology behind religion, I don't feel like opening Pandora's box. I just feel like you're asking for trouble there. Politics and religion. It's dangerous. All right, so now I want to take a quick pivot to this episode's Patreon bonus last call question. In this case, on the weirdly wonderful, sadistic, Eh, I don't know. Oh, well, you said I didn't swear enough. Sadistic fuck Cisneros, okay? So we're going to talk about Francisco Jimenez Cisneros. And I have asked Dr. Sherry Valencic to give me her insights into his fear of women, what is, I guess, called gynophobia. Listeners, follow the link in the show notes to get access to this excuse... Ex Exclusive? Exclusive last call Patreon discussion, as well as other bonus questions, and what the hell, even support the show in the process so we can keep doing this. So, <laughs> and if you want to know why so is funny, make sure you go back and listen to that Patreon episode. As we wrap up this round of Twist of Psych, Sherry, did you have any final comments on Isabella, or if not, maybe how in your mind she compares to another great mind of the show as we get ready to square her off against Catherine the Great next week on Shots Heard Round the World? Oh, so there I go again. You know, you want me to have it. I don't know enough about either to comment on that, but I do think that it is very telling that in a world that was still very patriarchal, that these two women rose to greatness. And I think they paved the way to greatness by their own doing. I don't think that they were handed that because of a birthright. I think that they created the opportunity for themselves. And so I think that that is something to be admired even though that there are those piece of shit things that uh, surround both of their, you know, their rule. Um, the one thing that I wanted to say, which I thought was very interesting that you inserted into the podcast, was that, you know, you have this great academic discussion about Isabella and her rule and different aspects of her governance. And then at the end, you throw in that she was a, a, a good-looking strawberry blonde. And oh. I, you know, I don't know if that's something that we would feel the need to highlight about her. And I think that... You know, when we look at Women's History Month, perhaps that is something that... That is a, that is a, I'm glad you brought that up and I can clarify it. I never thought anybody, anybody would pick up on that. Uh, that is oh, a running joke in my classroom, actually, because every year we watch the same series of, when we study the Granada War, we watch a, a show factual enough, but very pro-Christian. And I used it as an opportunity to teach them about bias and using certain sources. But the kids learn a lot from it. And then we read other texts to kind of reinforce it. And the the host, who I, I hope doesn't listen to the show, but <laughs> the host is, oh, what's the word? Obsessed with Isabella of Castile. And he'll say things like, Isabella's Catholic passion burned like the fire in her strawberry blonde hair. And it's just like the shit that he says. So that has every year for year after year after year become like a running joke. In, in my classroom. So I felt just like I would insert that for any of my former students that, that listened to this episode. So no, I didn't feel the need to bring up her strawberry blonde hair. Although well, but sure perhaps you need to keep this bit in when you edit this so that... Oh, I will. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because, absolutely. you know, in, in an era where, I mean, if you think about it, that you kind of shifted the entire focus of the show to be more inclusive and to recognize that even though many of these, you know, white men dominated history because of all of the social and cultural aspects of that. But I think Isabella is a good example of somebody, first of all, I think that she was a very smart woman. And, you know, I, I 
give her a lot of credit for, um, you know, her, her economic prowess for her country and certainly, you know, aligning herself with the Catholic Church. I, I am guessing that she had a lot of issues with that, but she knew that eventually it was going to be, you know, her area of Spain. But well, I, I mean, I'm glad it, I had I the opportunity to clear up the strawberry blonde thing. And I'll tell you, every image, I, I can never figure it out. I never see the strawberry blonde hair anyway. So, well, and, and you know, and I, I was thinking about that when you said it in your podcast, and right when it came out, I was just like, come on. But you know, I mean, this was an era where their aesthetics were everything. You know, they wore heavy makeup, they wore wigs, they wore, you know, lavish clothing and jewels. I mean, the aesthetic was important. It was important for men and women. But I think that women in power and women who were allied to powerful men, there was a norm that they were good looking. They were models well, for that. You don't know. If that would be something that I would think would be really important to highlight. It stuff. wasn't. No, it was. <laughs> I can't believe you caught that. It's one sentence at the or two words at the very end. This is oh, the problem with working with Sherry. She catches me. She knows me. Oh my gosh! And it sounds like what you're saying about Catherine v. Isabella is that you can't make a comment because it's going to be a fucking hard thing to figure out. And you were actually on the Louis versus Catherine shots. So, oh my. Listen, I believe I voted in Catherine's. Uh, Catherine won, yes, absolutely. And I'll the 14th fan. I am. Uh, I really am, but oh well. Well, that's it. If you enjoy Drinks with Great Minds in History, then be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. Some people said the Instagram handle was a little hard to find, so I went ahead and changed it to Drinks with Great Minds underscore podcast. Please be sure to go check it out. Don't forget to join the DGMH Facebook group where you can get a dose of DGMH daily and chat with all your favorite guests and, of course, me. Don't forget to leave the show a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you want to support the show and get access to even more great content, be sure to visit the DGMH Patreon page and hear conversations on all kinds of phobias and whatever other shit we talked about tonight. I know we didn't talk about The Wizard of Oz this time, so... No, but we could talk about that. We did what? No, we could talk about that, but how? I, I think I think this is long enough. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Are you saying it fits? No, I'm curious. Oh my god! All right, well there you have it, listeners. Maybe we'll talk about it another day. There you can get access to all sorts of bonus shots, discussions, cut segments, and bonus questions from a twist of psych. But well, Sherry, before we end, we should probably talk twists. So, what are you doing a shot of tonight? Okay, so first of all, I bought these fabulous little, they're, they're little demi-glass wine glasses, but I thought they were quite beautiful, and I got them at a thrift shop for 25 cents a piece this weekend. Uh, so, you know, going along with the whole female uh, thing, uh, they're, they're floral and they're beautiful. Uh, but actually, I am doing, I don't know if it's socially acceptable to do a shot of brand. But that's actually what I'm doing tonight because one of the things that I realized while I was listening to your podcast was this connection I have with Alhambra, Spain. So a lot of people don't know that there is actually a adult organization that is called the Order of the Alhambra and it is kind of like a Catholic version of the Shriners. Um, and it has a lot of imagery and traditions that are part of the organization that go back to Alhambra, Spain. And my parents actually belonged to this organization and were really involved in it when I was a little kid. And so in honor of my father, who uh, was part of this group, he loved apricot brandy. That was one of his favorite uh, beverages. So I don't know, is it is it politically correct to do a shot of brandy or is it just I, I don't, a sipping? I, I think it's a sipping thing, but you know what, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, you drink the way you want to drink. You want to put ice <laughs> in your wine, you want to chill your red wine, you want to drink your liquor straight, you want to shoot your brandy you shoot your brandy. you shoot the rest of your wine first though i like that uh, i did 
I don't even know. Do I have any? Yeah. So anyways, it has been a long time and I, I found a, a rogue bottle of apricot brandy in my liquor cabinet. It just reminded me of my dad and, and this organization that I've not thought of for a very long time. They wore fezes. Uh, they used oh, to awesome. dress in Moorish outfits. So, uh, it just reminded me of the episode. So uh, anyways... Brandy. I've had a few brandies in my day, but the brandy most close to my heart is, and we used to do shots of it at the bar, shots of ginger brandy, Jacqueline's ginger, cheap-ass ginger brandy. Why? Every old guy at the bar, you say, ah, oh, this will clear your sinuses right up. I'd walk in and, oh my God, you got cold, do a shot of ginger brandy, it'll cut it right up. That'll be good, blah, 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 blah. So that brings back warm, fuzzy memories. And again, that is the mere exposure effect where we drink these things and have these memories just to prove that I'm learning on this show. Tonight, I am bringing back my favorite Kanichi rum, the XO version, the reserve blend, still distilled in Barbados, which would have been one of those many islands that was Spanish at a time and that wasn't Spanish, but probably was devastated by Columbus, which is kind of Isabella's fault. And I looked at it and it was tequila or rum and it felt like a rum kind of night. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's to another episode of Twist of Psych. So cheers. Cheers to you, cheers. Sherry, and cheers to Isabella. There you have it. We have looked into the mind of this great mind, number 11, Isabella of Castile. What a wonderful strawberry blonde <laughs> figure in this. <laughs> or economic wizard, or oh my gosh, you are a wizard. You're going to get her killed by her own inquisition for calling her a wizard. <laughs> so, wow. No, you're right. Fuck the strawberry blonde thing. She was an economic wizard. Ah, fuck it. Cheers, Sherry. Cheers. Oh my gosh. Woo. That's good room. How I was your you My sinuses are clear right now. So as are mine. As are mine, indeed. I I, I love that's, that. That's some good stuff. The brandy or the. Yeah, and it's, you know, like a bottle. You know, my parents were cheap drunks, too. So I, I didn't grow up with that. I wish I could, I could say that I grew up with something bougie. I, I did not. Uh, it was all very basic. I mean, the majority of my family drank highballs. It was whiskey and ginger ale all around. We were, so. we were vodka drinkers, and Absolute was what we were into. And that's not, like, top of the line. You know, we went through everything. I, I don't think – I think that economic drinking – I mean, price – is a factor in the ratings on the scale of greatness. And I think that a badly, if it's worth the price, that's one thing. But if not, why pay more? My favorite vodka costs $16.99. And on that note, cheers. Mm -hmm.